0: Life Audio.
1: Hey, welcome back to the Gospel Rant. I'm Dr. Bill Senior. Thank you so much for checking in. And listen, make sure that you uh, follow the Gospel Rant wherever you listen to podcasts. Give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser or go to our uh webpage gospel rant.com give us a review let us know we're scratching itches Uh, you can push back bill at gospel-app.com love to hear your comments thank you for those who are uh, dialoguing with us it's a lot of fun we are really trying to help frustrated and beat up christians weary christians begin to hear the music again uh little by little and we're making some progress all right well, to that end, we're going through the greatest gospel presentation of God's love for the unlovable in the Old Testament, uh, and listen, for everyone, but in particular for women, I would say, the Queen, the Shulamite, and the Song of Songs, she's largely been misunderstood. Uh, she is a metaphor, uh, the, the whole thing is a trope for who we are when God's love for the unlovable finds us, but it doesn't leave us there. It's this redemptive love of, of God, and it's the transformation happens more than we know. And, and just to be clear, she is where God finds us today. She is who we are when God finds us tomorrow and the next. So to one degree or another, we are strangled, maybe too strong a word, maybe not, but strangled in shame. It's what this world does to us. Uh, Sam Storms is helpful. Listen to what he says. Shame can lead to a variety of emotions and actions. It leads to feelings of being not just unqualified, but disqualified from anything meaningful or of having a significant role in the body of Christ. People enslaved to shame are constantly apologizing to others for who they are. They feel small flawed, never good enough. They live under the crippling fear of never measuring up, of never pleasing those whose love and respect they desire. This often results in efforts to work harder, to compensate for feeling less than everyone else. Shame has innumerable effects on the human soul. Those in shame have a tendency to hide, to create walls of protection behind which they hunker down and hope no one will see the true you. They're terrified that they're True self will be seen and known and rejected by others. Oh, my. So they put on a false face. They adopt personality or certain traits that they think others will find acceptable. They are convinced that if someone were to see them for who they really are, they would be repulsed and disappointed. So they are led to be less than their true self. They deliberately stifle whatever strengths they have. They say to themselves... Whatever I do, don't be vulnerable. It's dangerous. Close quotes. Oh, my. You know, I know some of you are resonating with that. Some of you are denying that. But listen, I think this is a fair statement. At some point in our lives, maybe recently, we've felt that. Yeah? Well, the Song of Songs is about what God's transforming love does for shamed people. That's the Benny. That's, that's the gospel presentation. All right? Well, I need to stop for a word from our sponsors, but we will be right back. But look around you, your family, your faith. They're not in the way. They are the way.
0: From the creators of Jesus Revolution comes the incredible true story.
1: It's going to be dangerous and scary and giving up. It's not an option. The
0: story of one family's journey from down under to center stage. Unsung Hero, a for king and country film starring Candace Cameron Bure and Terry O'Quinn. In theaters now. Visit unsunghero.movie to learn more. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. The Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at org slash impact.
1: Okay, welcome back. We are going to be looking at the queen in the Song of Songs, the Shulamite, some people call her, through the lens of the attachment theory. I'm a big fan of the attachment theory of John Bowlby and others. It's helped me understand what causes, you know, regular people, reasonable people, Uh causes them to struggle more than you would expect with addiction or anxiety or or PTSD or depression or ADHD, shame. It's a whole bunch of uh, mental, emotional, and identity issues. I want to take this podcast and see what attachment theory helps us say about the Queen. So my invitation for you, the audience, is to be open. That's just it. Sit back, uh, let your shoulders drop, breathe a bit, and just be open to hear what God would tell you, and me as well, but you, about your own inner working models. That's a concept in the attachment theory, these deeply dug inner working models that were formed in infancy that are still there affecting your decisions, affecting your emotions, affecting your sense of worth and identity, okay? And look, this is a safe place. That's a beautiful thing about podcast. Um It's a safe place for you to consider these things, and I promise you we're not going to leave you there. We're going to end up with the gospel, and that's the big deal. So this is just where God and his incongruous love for the unlovable, for the shamed, finds us. Let's be honest. Well, attachment theory always begins in infancy with the infant. So imagine a young girl or boy, let's focus on a young girl, maybe under a year old. She's on the floor. She's alone. She's crying at the top of her lungs. She can't form words or concepts. But what she's saying is something's wrong. I'm hurting. I'm wet. I'm hungry. I'm afraid. I'm lonely. I'm abandoned. Those areas of the brain are triggering before the brain can identify what's up. And neuroscience now tells us that all pain which includes loneliness and feeling abandoned, pains. They're registered in a single part of our brain, which is already developed in infancy. So in the infant girl's ACC, that's anterior cingulate cortex, for those of you who are taking notes, her brain is saying, ouch. She doesn't know what it means, so her subconscious takes over and moves the problem to her brain's amygdala, uh, which releases cortisol, and a fight flight freeze cycle ensues, and she cries out, uh, fight. But she could just as easily shut down, and that would be the freeze cycle, if it's just uh, it's catastrophic or traumatic or chronic. So attachment theorists have given her silent ACC voice a single, poignant, universal brain question, Right? Uh, This is our interpretation of what the brain is kind of saying without her knowing it. And here it is. Is there anyone there for me? Boy, what a poignant question. Is there anyone there for me? Is there anyone there for me? Hey, out there, is there anyone there? See, all of us are familiar with this singular subconscious cry of our midbrain. It's not a man or a woman thing. It's universal. It crosses race lines, sex lines, culture, country of origin, socioeconomic demographics of any kind. And no doubt, it it really has changed little in the more than 2,000 years since the Queen's confession, (laughs) because it's brain science. So it's as good now as it was then. The Queen was crying out, is there anyone there for me? That's not how she was saying it rationally, she was acting out her inner working models, reactionary behavior. So for adolescents, like the queen, uh, teens, right? That single cry can be parsed effectively, I think, into two expressions of that pain. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. But back to the infant girl, she will likely cry and cry and cry until she finds relief. And what form would the relief take? Well, likely a friendly, familiar, safe face like her mom or dad or caretaker who's smiling and patting her on the back in a comfort, comforting manner, looking into her in her eyes and saying, there, there, baby, I'm here, I got gotcha. you. What's the matter? I'm, I'm here now. I mean, this lilting voice, comforting, safe place, you're there for her, and she sees it with her eyes. Well... We now know from attachment theory that infants cannot emotionally self-regulate on their own. Uh, among the mammals on the planet, we're the kind of the worst of that. The infants need caretakers uh, to co-regulate for them, with them, right? That part of the brain is just not developed in humans. They need others. They need caregivers. They need uh, somebody else. It's how God created her and you and me. We are a creation born dependent upon others. That's really important. It just seems like we forget that in our, our quest to become independent. We're a creation born to be dependent on others. It's a brain thing. If adult caregivers have attuned with their child enough, says attachment theorists, which is three out of ten interactions, uh, that's what we built the the, the uh, Good Enough Parent program on, goodenoughparent.online if they have, if they can do three out of ten, not six out of ten, you don't have to do nine out of ten, but if you can do at least three out of ten that are legitimate attunement, and I've done other podcasts on that and YouTube videos, Dr. Bill Senior, uh, the child will likely enter the next stage of life secure. Meaning, in attachment theory terms, they're going to be happier, they're going to be more interesting exploring their world, uh, all from the security of that emotional bonding that they count on with their parents and caregivers. And they begin to they begin to be able to self regulate emotions a little or a lot as they become toddlers and, uh, and pre tweens. <clears throat> if the child does not experience enough attunement, the three out of 10, or uh, effective co regulation from their parents or caregivers, they're going to enter the next stage of life insecure. And we, we see that frequent irritability, temper tantrums, self soothing, like sucking their tongues, uh, their, their thumbs, tearfulness unprompted outburst, and just difficulty self-soothing, right? Sucking thumbs, squirming, that kind of thing. So back to the infant girls on the floor, the girl's sense of being secure and loved and willing to thrive depends on two things, her sense of feeling enoughness and her sense of feeling connectedness, All right? I want to unpack those. This will be so helpful. Uh, this for adults as well. If you're parents of teens, this is so important. It is definitely something we emphasize in the Good Enough Parent Online curriculum. Here we go. Enoughness. When children are three or four, they go into this wonderful and maddening questioning phase. Why? 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 Well, during adolescence, there's another questioning phase. Where the questions expand and get harder. Am I good enough? Do my parents really love me? Do my friends, am I likable? Am I attractive? Am I fun to be with? Is there anybody else out there who likes me? Am I enough to be loved? Is is really a summation of all those questions. Am I enough? I mean, even if they knew my secrets, my mess ups, or am I too fat, too thin, too smart, too dumb, this or that skin color, awkward, not funny enough, my hair's funky. Am I enough to ever experience being loved, or am I, in the Queen's terms, dark yet lovely? Enoughness is related to our present experience of value and worth in our own eyes and our perception of how others see us. Here's David Zoll in Seculosity. Listen carefully, and you'll hear the word enough everywhere, especially when it comes to the anxiety, loneliness, exhaustion, and division that plague our moment to such tragic proportions. Tragic proportion, you'll hear about people scrambling to be successful enough, happy enough, thin enough, wealthy enough, influential enough, desired enough, charitable enough, woke enough, good enough. We believe instinctively that were we to reach some benchmark in our minds, then value, vindication, and love would be ours. I mean, if we were just enough, we'd be happier. It's related to shame, right? Shame happens when I realize that I'm not experiencing enoughness, and I come to believe that it's my fault. I'm broken. Something's wrong with me. Something's off. I am not enough to have a real relationship where someone gets me and likes me, where my life matters to others and to God. Shame is uh, an acutely painful emotion in which the self is experienced a small or childish worthless, or and self-condemned, and paralyzed and helpless. It involves feeling of exposure of the entire self and a desire to disappear and run away. So it's fear of enoughness, and we'll see fear of connectedness. So one person puts it this way. I think this is smart. Shame feels like a solitary pain, but in fact, shame in all of its forms is relational. Shame's relational. That's such a big deal. This is Patricia Young. Good stuff. Shame is the experience of self-in-relation when in-relation is ruptured or disconnected. A chronic sense of self-in-disconnection becomes a profound sense of isolation, which in turn leads to feelings of despair and unworthiness. I love the phrase self-in-disconnection. You felt that. I have felt it. I went through a whole season. We called it high school. (laughs) Self-in-disconnection. I didn't have those words then, but whew. Uh, it was real. Here's another quote from Pam Rutledge. Shame strikes at our basic sense of worth making us feel that we're fundamentally wrong or not good enough. Shame becomes part of our global self schema and becomes a lens which all experience is filtered. It's like OCD. I mean, the shame becomes the thing that drives my life. Brene Brown calls shame a gremlin that says you're never good enough and who do you think you are? Here's some classic shame-related enoughness questions. What's wrong with me? Can I get rid of this self-condemnation? Can I be fixed? How can God ever love a bad person like me? Am I lovable at all? Ouch. Well, one of the problems in dealing with mental health issues such as shame is that for the most part, they carry great social stigma. So we don't want to admit them. It's somewhat comparable to the stigma carried by, in the in the Queen's case, being sexually active pre-marriage. You know, my vineyard I have not kept. Uh, there's another biblical social stigma that I think is related. I think leprosy, when you are found to have a rash of any kind which you probably covered up or were in some denial about before. But, you know, you went from one level on the societal food chain to the lowest of lows. You would be separated from your family and tribe, avoided, isolated, shamed over and over again. They would pass you by at a distance. Imagine the possible emotions rushing through your brain. That's shame. You might feel broken, subhuman, lost, alone, isolated, unloved, cursed by God, that God was actually punishing you for something you weren't aware of, or life is just unfair. You might feel ugly, uh, without any possibility of having any normal connections. It's all from a distance, that disconnectedness. You were destined to being disconnected forever. I mean, think of the hopelessness, yuck. I mean, you could see it in the eyes of the people who looked away and made their children look away in disgust and walk way away from you. All right, the covering of the eyes of the children. Oh, whew, how hurtful is that? One blogger suggested that the leading proponent of feelings of not enoughness is in my own brain. Here's a quote that critical inner voice exists in all of us, reminding us that we aren't good enough and don't deserve anything good. It tends to be louder and meaner in some of us than others, and it tends to pick on us more or less at different points in our lives. Yet one thing's for sure, as long as we are listening to this dangerous critic that twists our reality, we can't really trust our own perceptions of what others think of us. To one degree or another, we are lonely and feel broken. Close quote. Biblically, by the way, enoughness is the essence of the word righteousness. I mean, I need to feel right, whole within myself and in relationship to others and to God. That's that. What righteousness is really fundamentally a right, a relationship term in attachment theory terms. Strictly because of what Jesus did for me two thousand years ago, God sees me as enough, and He treats me as enough. Meaning the same way the father treats the son and the son treats the father. And the passion of the spirit in my inner being is to make me feel more enough today in that in that Trinitarian dance. That's, by the way, a uh, plug for our online curriculum, the dance, the-dance.org. We try to get people to see this again and again and again and to pick up the dance. So... Um, the Spirit gives me access to God-sourced power, that's Ephesians 3, 14 to 21, in order that I can actually begin to experience the height and width and length and depth of the love of Christ today, that I can feel enough, at least in that important relationship. Boy, do I need it. Guilt and shame over my sin displaces me from experiencing that love that that Jesus purchased for me. So I have it, but I'm not experiencing it. Well, uh, for the adolescent today, A lot of uh, hope is put in social media for that sense of enoughness. In fact, it's uh, often not that. It's often gas on the lack of enoughness fire because teenagers can now compare themselves, their lives, their likability, their body, their enoughness with others 24-7, and no one wins. Uh, Same for women today. Check out this quote. Surrounded by images of beauty, the mirror whispers, I'm not enough. The snapshots of other lives look like they've arrived when I've just messed up again, my daily journey is more a roller coaster between moods based on whether I feel like I've measured up or often enough not. Is there is there any good news for me in the idea of ideal womanhood or just more judgment? Enoughness. It's related to your present experience or awareness of value and worth in your own eyes and most importantly, your perception of how you think others see you. Do they see you as enough? And ask the question Am I really lovable? Am I enough? Or am I broken? It turns out that this need for enoughness just cannot be, listen, cannot be satisfied by the usual suspects social media. Yeah, it's not going to make a dent. Career, family, sexuality choices, sex, taking up good causes, fitness, diet, travel, music. Any other form of busyness, these things can give you enoughness hits. Think addiction, right, but nothing permanent. Jonesing for enoughness is at the root of almost all addictions. If you have mommy or daddy issues, you've got enoughness issues. Dealing with their feelings of enoughness often consumes teens, parents. Again, goodenoughparent.online, we tell you, give you tips on how you can uh, push back against that. And in the Song of Songs, the queen struggles with a lack of enoughness. That's where the king finds her, and his love transforms her to feeling enough. That's the gospel. Well, here's a good place to get another word from our sponsors. We'll pick this up in a moment, and we'll look at connectedness. So, so, so important. See you in a second.
0: What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. The Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at museumofthebible.org impact. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up.
1: Hey, welcome back. Connectedness, <clears throat> or maybe better fear of disconnectedness, refers to your adolescence or, or infants or spouses or your feelings of being alone, isolated, not being in a life-giving relationship, whatever you mean by that, or thinking that that you'll never find someone who you can trust, someone who has your well-being in mind all the time, someone who has your back. Here's Bernay Brown again. What comes from the inside of us is a very human need to belong, to relate. We are wired for connection. It's in our biology. Connection is critical because we all have the basic need to feel accepted and to believe that we belong and are valued for who we are. Well, chronic disconnectedness and subsequent feelings of loneliness and isolation, that predisposes you to an entire spectrum of mental illnesses, including depression, anxiety, Suicide ideation, incivility, hypercausal to addictive behaviors, uh, rage, which could lead to school shootings, for instance. It asks the questions: Can I really count on you, on others, or on anybody, for that matter? Here's Rachel Wartzman. Think of it like this: Loneliness or disconnectedness creates a hunger in the brain, right? And this is a subconscious hunger in the brain. And our brain signals deep dissatisfaction. We become restless irritable and impulsive, if we don't have the ability to connect socially, we are so ravenous for our social neurochemistry to be rebalanced, we're likely to seek relief from anywhere. And if that anywhere is opioid painkillers or heroin, it's going to be a heat-seeking missile for our social reward systems. Is there any wonder people in the world today are becoming addicted so easily? So, yeah, we have a drug problem in our country and world, but the The real deal is, the the preceding deal is we have a mental health problem in in our country. Disconnectedness, uh, lack of a sense of enoughness, all of these things. Man, the gospel speaks into that. We just have to learn how to apply it. That's the song of songs, okay? So keep, keep keep in this program, the song of songs, the kisses of God. So what happens in the brain of a teenager who has experienced chronic disconnectedness? and has zero hope of enoughness. Think of those teens who've suffered chronic abuse, abandonment, disattached, emotionally absent caregivers. Here it is. Oh, this is frightening. They stop expressing their need. They learn to unconsciously reject their needs and then shut down and disconnect from their needs. Children who experience this sort of deprivation give up their demand for caring and love. They decide unconsciously that there is no hope that their needs will be met. Giving up becomes a common way they respond to stress. As such a child matures, she becomes used to living with these unmet physical and emotional needs. She develops survival strategies like being really helpful to others and needing very little for herself. She has an unconscious belief that her deepest needs don't matter and that she doesn't matter. She may feel erased and empty like she doesn't exist. When she risks expressing a need, she gives up easily if someone doesn't respond. When caregivers consistently attune to a baby's need, neural networks are built in the brain to support the development of communication and social skills. When there is consistent misattunement, a baby lives in a state of constant stress due to unmet needs, creating significant emotional and physiological issues. Look, man, while I was reading that, faces came to my mind of, of, of... of men and women, teens, uh, boys and girls who fit this and, and often because they they back off so much and they, they, they avoid fighting, they, they seem like good children but in really they've got they've got serious mental issues that, that are that are fixable. Um, all they need is connectedness and enoughness. Again, we hammer on that in goodenoughparent.online <clears> online. <throat> check it out. It's still free by the way it's online goodenoughparent.online it's all subconscious. It's not all their fault. So uh, this teenager, if that describes them, may see the world as an unsafe place and will struggle to trust others. And, uh, and here are the connectedness questions. We did the enoughness questions. So who am I in, in the eyes of others? Who am I in my family's eyes or my tribe's eyes? Who am I in my eyes? Who am I in God's eyes? Who do I perceive I am in your eyes, my family, my tribe's eyes? Who do I perceive I am in God's eyes? Think of the queen. This is where God finds her. This is where God finds me today. So, where is the dark yet lovely queen's headspace in movement number one? You see, a secure teen with good self-regulation will not not experience rapidly shifting extremes of emotional highs and lows in the face of her challenges, her difficulties, disappointments, fears. Um, Right? She wouldn't depend on others' responses or external activities or substances in order to feel okay. But the person with poor self-regulation is more than likely to look outside of herself for emotional soothing. That's clearly what the queen's doing, which is why the lack of attunement in infancy actually increases addiction risk. So the queen presents herself as being insecure. No judgment. That's the before picture. She has holes. And for the queen, uh, this adolescent, right? Again, we think she's 14, 15, 16 tops. This adolescent, young, insecure girl, uh, her brain's inner working models likely communicate to herself that she's not lovable, not really, and she has no one she can trust because everybody's used her. That's uh, the beginning of movement one. People have leveraged her desire for love to abuse and leave her. And perhaps this is how she sees the world and how she sees her place in it. For her, it's not safe. Nothing has hurt her more than relationships. She's counted on others before, like her brothers, uh, the man or men she's had sex with, uh, and has learned that no one has her back. Um, And by the way, if she was raped, uh, there's no sense of justice for that. Nobody came to her aid there either, apparently. It's just a tragic memory. uh, Her vineyard she has not kept. So in summary, the two nagging questions that are subconsciously hammering the queen's midbrain, uh, even when she might seem so chill on the outside, are this. One, am I enough to be loved? Enoughness. And is there anyone that I can really, really, really count on? Connectedness. Well, can her brain be rewired? Yes, sure. Here's the young again. Shame can be healed, therefore, if a person can be brought back into connection where empathy and emotional joining are possible. In our case, yeah, if she can get into the king's loving embrace and keep looking up into his eyes. Gabor Mate says this about addictions in particular, but it certainly applies to people disfigured by chronic shame. They are unable to develop compassion toward themselves and their bodies while they are regarded as outcasts, hunted as enemies, and treated like human refuse. Recall that uncertainty, isolation, loss of control, and conflict are the major triggers for stress, and that stress is the most predictable factor in maintaining addiction and triggering relapse. We must provide that island of relief, we have to demonstrate that esteem, acceptance, love, and human interaction are realities in this world, contrary to what the addict has learned all, all his or her life. And same thing for the queen. So healthy relationships that ooze with a sense of enoughness and connectedness begin to rewire the brain, all things equal. Or as John puts it, perfect love cast out fear, First John four eighteen. He could have just as easily said that perfect love cast out shame or lack of enoughness or disconnectedness is a perfect love. There's only one source of that. It's God's source that we can begin to experience by faith through the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 3. It's for me and you, there's no greater or more life-altering relationship than that one purchased for us by Jesus. So for the queen, there's the king and his miraculous, unique love for her that just never ends. All other relationships are shockingly fragile. Every one, but not that one. So I imagine her saying I'm left feeling like two different people, one an object of beauty and desire, the other an object of despise. So don't judge me for my appearance. My skin has long ago been darkened by the scorching gaze of the sun, but deeper damage has been done against me. I've suffered dishonor directly or indirectly at my brother's hands, those who should have cared for me, those who should have protected me, but no, they forced me to work for them in the in the vineyards like a slave. And I've suffered burning despised from my own hands as as well. I sold myself and my purity cheap into the burning arms of others or to be even further burned. Am I a victim or am I a self victimizer? Who am I? Well, now we're ready for the conflict that drives this poetic narrative and we get a good idea of the character of of the queen, right? Someone has come to her now, the king, and seems to love her as she is seems to be indifferent to all of those things she talked about, to her shame, her disconnectedness, her messes, seems to value her more than her family did, more than even the son does, and, matter of fact, more than even she does. And yet, right, she says, one such man came to me. He paid my full dowry price to my brothers, a price that reflects honor and worth, that reflects purity that I don't have, that I have not kept, and it thrills me, and it troubles me. It makes me hope and it makes me enraged. Should I run away or should I fall into his arms? Here it is. So how does she process the king, this strange relationship, this pursuing love and longing, her angers, fears, and pains? <laughs> well, we'll see. It is, like I said, it's it's very sophisticated. It's very modern, like nothing I've seen in ancient po- poetry. Um, look, well, you probably heard we created a bookmark prayer that young people that women that men can say aloud to their traumatized shame midbrain that's all of us uh we're we're pushing against a a well-developed and a working models per attachment theory so if you say this prayer say it please twice a day three times a day 30 or 40 days and you're going to be surprised the difference that it makes here it is just listen Jesus follower, strictly because of what Jesus did for you 2,000 years ago, God actually loves you. He loves you with all of his heart as much as the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father. He can't love you any more or any less than he does right now. He loves you as you are, not as you should be or could be. You can't add to this love or take away from it. Now, I get it. It often feels like you've messed it up or need to do something so that God would like you better. Not so. How do you experience it more now? Simple, good news, there is something that you can do and are invited to do. You can take daily baby steps to ask the spirit inside of you to make you know, remember, forget the wimpy help stuff, make you know, experience and feel just how much God loves you right now. Just ask, ask again later today, ask tomorrow, make it a spiritual habit. I'm telling you, this it seems absurd that this would be helpful, but believe me, it is. You can get them in bookmark form from the webpage store, www.gospelrant.com. That's one word, gospelrant.com. Look, get a bunch, hand them out to family and friends, people at your Bible study, your church. Uh, while you're on the Gospel Rant page, do me a big favor and, and sign our, our mailing list. You'll get a free gift from me, but also uh, click follow. It will take you to to uh, Apple Podcast or Podchaser or wherever you listen to to uh, your podcast. It is so important that you follow and give us a review. You you are becoming a co conspirator with us. So many people look at that uh, how many followers and the, the reviews before they listen to a podcast. So you are you are helping us come alongside of hurting people. Yeah. I'm also rewriting my book on the Song of Songs. It's going to be explosive. If you are on the mailing list, you'll get a heads up as we proceed to to publication. It's going to be exciting. Let me know what you're getting out of this series, Bill, at gospel-app.com. Remember, follow the podcast, give it a review. And thanks to lifeaudio.com for their support and platform. It's important that we get this to a broader audience. Please help us out. Share, forward, let people know. Let one person know this week. Take heart, child of God. Do you want to better understand the Bible and give biblical answers to those who ask you about your faith?